0: Duty, little buckaroo. Do you like animals? We sure do. So come on down to the weekly meeting of the animal fan club.
1: Kruku, kruku,
0: the crook. Coo clock is proclaiming that it's creature clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar.
2: Roar!
0: And open the door to join us for the 54th meeting of the animal fan club.
1: I'm a bristly little she bore Meredith.
0: And I'm living my fierce pseudo armadillo truth. Mike.
1: And we like to meet every week at our clubhouse we call the Dalmatian station. (laughs) to talk about our favorite animals.
0: While we lack an expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder.
1: Wow.
0: So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia.
1: Whoa, like the whole kingdom animalia, Mike?
0: Yeah, we try and represent all extant phyla as best we can. Although the trips into the, you know, nematode realm are always a little bit like, whoa. And, you know, if we start talking about annelids, things get a little weird. But hey.
1: How could they not? Yeah. Those wily annelids.
0: That's part of life, you know.
1: (laughs) So how has your week in animals been? Speaking of life.
0: Well, exciting platypus news that broke after we recorded our most recent platypus episode. Yeah. That they glow ultraviolet like under ultraviolet light, which is hilarious.
1: They're like super (laughs) groovy. Yes. That's so funny because I was going to send that to you and I was like, oh man, I just don't want to inundate him with like platypus stuff. You know, I'm sure you're going to be getting so much platypus content sent to you. But I did see that and I had a hearty laugh about it. because I was like, I knew these guys were groovy hanging out in their black lights.
0: (laughs) I saw, (laughs) I think it was on Colbert. They were talking about it. They quoted the people in the lab and it was like a confluence of serendipity and whimsy or something like that. They like said this very $20 word sentence to pretty much indicate like, well, we got high and thought it would be funny to shine an ultraviolet light at the platypus, (laughs) (laughs) which is probably what happened let's be honest
1: that is so and they're like whoa (laughs) (laughs) look at this
0: platypus glowing, bro
1: yeah it was funny to see them all kind of like laid out you know what they're funny little flippers and like it looked like a warhol painting like the layout of them like the way like the different colors (laughs) were kind of like showcased in each frame of the platypus it was very silly. yeah yeah then I went down this whole like rabbit hole of just all the New York Times articles that there were on platypuses and man those things are goofy they're so goofy (laughs) but like the the shape of the nose and the way it kind of attaches on the face it made me think of the shoe bill which we've also covered which is a very like beak bill central bird
0: we've also agreed that shoe bills are metal
1: Yes, definitely. And so our platypie, platypuses. Excuse me. I was just looking at a picture of a shoe bill, and I was like, "Wow, oh, that beak is kind of beak prominent in the same way that the the duck bill of the duck bill platypus is bill prominent." Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of face there. It's like the face to bill ratio is highly uh, skewed. Bill, bill word.
0: Yeah, face to bill ratio. <laughs> That's like mu beta.
1: What? Oh, I'm not here for science.
0: Me neither. Clearly. Yeah, that was like a math and physics joke. I'm, I don't know that it was funny.
1: I'm just also an idiot. <laughs> don't, lest you forget.
0: why well, Yeah. I mean, sure. I'm also convinced that I didn't actually successfully make <laughs> a joke, so. How was your week in animals, Meredith?
1: Well, if I can lower the uh, intellectual quotient of this even further, I saw some tits in the park.
0: Ooh.
1: And by tits, I mean the bird. (laughs) Ooh. But we were talking with, wouldn't that be a funny, obnoxious, like only a birder would get this shirt or it's like two tits, like in the place where boobies would be. It's like, check out these tits or something along those lines. It's just like the birds.
0: Yeah. (laughs) or it could be like picture like images of birds having their photograph taken and it could be called it could say like just flashing my tits or something like that
1: oh man there's this one section on my park path in central park where um the tits Seem to congregate. Like literally. they I've never I know what they look like, but I've never seen some tits in real life. So I was quite excited to see some tits in the park.
0: They should rename that part of the park Tits Meadow.
1: Should because yeah, they're abundant. I don't know if it's like a migratory thing or what. I don't really know much about tits. Um, having never studied or possessed or let alone held one. So I I don't know.
0: <sighs> well, good luck on your tit journey, Meredith.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: May your arms runneth over with friendly tits
1: <laughs> my cup overfloweth yeah i too like you hopefully you're in a better spot with this now but i've embarked on a uh, a roach battle of my own
0: oh god in, i'm sorry in the
1: dishwasher
0: it's never ending good luck
1: the the german cockroaches apparently they sure love their dishes they love hanging out in that dishwasher I'm sorry You know, it's okay. It's like, in the words of Holland Notes, she only comes out at night. I don't know. But at night, I'm a roach killer. Yeah. Unlike a man eater. But yeah. Whatever. I love that for (laughs) you.
0: I think that's the right journey for you. Pretty
1: ridiculous. And I realized, like, my neighbors could probably see my pretty much bare ass, like, crawling around, (laughs) scrambling after roaches in my underwear. At one o'clock in the night,
0: I <sighs> do say that the best thing to be wearing when killing a roach is as little as possible. Right, it feels more primal. You don't want them
1: nestling in your folds. You don't folds of your bathrobe or whatever. My right sleep right. cap.
0: <laughs> this is also a moment where I just wish I had a cat because I feel like a cat would kind of help control. This.
1: <sighs> there are so many moments in which I wish I had a cat. I didn't even think about this one, but oh my gosh, they would be losing their mind. Catching roaches right and left. Yeah.
0: I wonder if I can get a cat.
1: Oh, my God. Please get a cat.
0: I want a cat, but I'm allergic, and that's a problem. Oh, shit. I'm not quite sure how it would fly in my building, but I think that I've been here long enough that I could just be like, look, I'm getting a fucking cat, and it would be okay, or I could even probably just get the cat and just hide it, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. I want... My pets to not be secret pets. Secret pets. See? <laughs> get Get a secret cat and name it Shh, Kitty. That's funny.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, I feel like.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's get into it, Meredith.
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: All right. I think you... you go
1: first this week.
0: I do. I do. That's right. It's an even episode.
1: Should we explain the premise of this episode?
0: I think we should. Yeah. yeah. Why don't you take that? Why don't you take yeah, sure. that? Yeah, sure.
1: Last year, as you may remember, we released a Thanksgiving special and we talked about the turkey and we played some turkey games, just did some general turkey talk. So this year we wanted to do something a little different, and that is to celebrate National Native American Heritage Month, which is the month of November. And we thought we would showcase some animals that have particular significance to various indigenous groups. Habitating in the United States.
0: Are you ready?
1: I hope so. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who?
0: Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. No plants here. Phylum. Cordata. Sit up straight, you vertebrate. Class. Mammalia. Fur keeps us warm. Order. Carnivora. Meat. It's what's for dinner. Family. Canny day. Dogs and their pals. Genus. It's a genus of the day family. It's closer to wolves. Species. Latrans. Canis. Latrans is the coyote. It's sneaky. Get into it. It's not the wolf.
1: I have to say sit up straight, you vertebrate, is so great.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm always trying to think of rhymes for that one for, um... Cordata in particular. Yeah. You nailed it. I love that one. I
0: think that I stole Carnivora meat. It's what's for dinner. I think I've stolen that one from you. I think that you came up with that originally.
1: Well, I stole that from the beef campaign of the 90s, like 94. Mm-hmm. Remember they had the Aaron Copeland Rodeo? And all about, like all those 90 fa- 90s families eating beef. Oh,
0: right. Right. Beef. beef. It's what's for dinner. What's,
1: what's for dinner? <laughs>
0: hmm I always liked pork, the other white meat.
1: Which I think, we I was just talking to Anthony about this. I think they use the Overture of the Marriage of Figaro.
0: Oh, interesting. In their
1: commercials. A
0: little Mozart mom.
1: Dueling um, classical red meat ads of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Oh, my God, coyote, though. I'm so excited for this.
0: It's a species of canine. It's native to North America. It's smaller than the wolf. The golden jackal in Eurasia fills the same ecological niche as the coyote does in North America. Interesting. The coyote tends to be slightly larger and more predatory, though. Hmm. A.K.A.'s prairie wolf- bush wolf we got 19 recognized subspecies oh the males and the females are very close in size the males are slightly larger 18 to 44 pounds females are 15 to 40 pounds their fur is predominantly light gray and red or fulvis (laughs) interspersed with black and white
1: fulvis
0: fulvis f-u-l-v-o-u-s it's a color Sometimes described as dull orange, brown, yellow, or tawny, it can be likened to a variation of buff beige or butterscotch.
1: Cute. So it's like further down the yellow spectrum from Rufus.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah.
1: Fluvis. I like that. Yeah. Fulvis. I'm sorry.
0: Fulvis.
1: Fulvis.
0: It's okay. And I think that this is a British spelling of it. F-U-L-V-O-U-S. Okay. So I'm wondering if there's alternate spellings. It's a line of inquiry.
1: Interesting. Indeed.
0: The range is all of North America. It was recently noted that a coyote was spotted on the South American side of the Panama Canal, which would be like outside its normal habitat. Yeah. They're very adaptable. They're like these creatures that we've been talking about that we forget the word for. That have really figured out a way to live around the artificial environments that humans surround themselves with and to thrive in those environments.
1: Right. What was that word?
0: As carnivora, they are primarily carnivorous. They eat deer, rabbits, hares, rodents, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, invertebrates. They'll occasionally eat fruits and vegetables as well.
1: Hmm. Balanced diet.
0: I know. A balanced diet, right? We just need some grains. <laughs> That howl that we all know is their characteristic vocalization, which is made by solitary individuals. Right. Their basic social unit is a pack, which consists of like a reproductive female and a bunch of other individuals. Mm -hmm. Unrelated coyotes may join forces for companionship or to level up in their hunting abilities and take down larger prey in a sort of loosely knit pack, a, a so-called non-family pack. These tend to be only temporary and maybe like a group of bachelor males, non-reproductive females, and sub-adult young, just kind of all hanging out and hunting together.
1: You know what's funny? Sub-adult, I literally just experienced that word today for the first time in my research really yeah I've never seen sub-adult like I guess is that some is that like the tween it's like
0: I think it might be
1: like juvenile and Mm -hmm. like teenager right yes
0: right yeah the tween years (laughs) so the families are formed in midwinter which is when females enter estrus which brings us to their mating habits uh-oh. Hair bonding can occur two to three months before the actual copulation takes place. So there's, you know, a lot of buildup here, like a lot of romance between a
1: lot of courtship.
0: Yeah. like you, Coyote
1: courting. You got to
0: prove that you can behave yourself <laughs> if you want to be with me.
1: Behave yourself.
0: Are you a good boy? We're going to find out. You have two <laughs> to three months to prove that you are a good boy.
1: Oh my gosh, it's like 90 day fiance. <laughs>
0: it's just like 90 day fiance. So when a male is interested in mounting, he will sniff her vulva. And if she's unreceptive, she might sit, lie down, snap at him, retreat, or just generally be uncooperative. But if she is receptive, she'll stand still and hold her tail to the side, which is called flagging. (laughs) Okay. The male will continue examining her rear before mounting her from behind while attempting penetration with his penis.
1: I wonder what he's looking for in that examination.
0: I mean, <laughs> he's probably just like getting a lay of the land, yeah, you know,
1: yeah, planning his approach,
0: right? So, unlike human sexual intercourse, where the male penis is commonly erect before entering the female canine copulation involves the male first entering the female, after which a swelling of the penis to erection occurs typically rapidly. Now, you may be asking yourself, how can this canine penis penetrate when it's not erect? And that's because it contains a narrow bone called the baculum, a feature of most placental mammals, and the namesake of Scott Bacula.
1: Who is Scott Bacula?
0: From Quantum Leap.
1: We've had other communication breakdowns about quantum leap before i think
0: Wait, have we
1: i think you've made a reference to it before and i've been like what's that and you're like quantum leap duh and i'm like um
0: yeah, he played dr samuel beckett on quantum leap you've never seen that show
1: no i oh, remember man, i remember people talking about it but well I'm sorry. okay no <laughs> so it's sorry. fine
0: it's fine it's fine it's fine <laughs> Once the male's inside of the female, he'll hold her tight and thrust deeply. (laughs) It's during this time that his penis will expand. And it's important to the copulation process that the bulbous gland is sufficiently far inside the female to be able to trap it.
1: Oh, man. Okay.
0: So... Male canines, so they have this bulbous gland. It's like a spherical area of erectile tissue at the base of their penis. So after the male's penis is inside the female's vagine, then the bulbous gland becomes engorged. And in coyotes, the female's vagina contracts and this penis becomes locked inside the female this is known as tying or knotting and so in husbandry like when you're breeding dogs Mm -hmm. I've encountered this before in my just general dog knowledge okay that after they engage in the act then you kind of have to like swivel the dude around off of the lady and then they kind of stand butt to butt and just kind of look around and be like dopey dogs and that's like the knot or like I've heard it called a couple things, but I've seen it as here. It's referred to as tying or knotting or the copulatory tie. So that's what we're going to call as the copulatory tie. OK. In coyotes, that can last five to 45 minutes.
1: So they just stand butt to butt and look around.
0: Yeah. And just kind of like look around and they'll kind of like <laughs> like dopey dogs for like five to 45 minutes until everything settles down and then it's all over
1: about the bulbous gland Mm. is bulbous in this case like a like a proper noun you know what i mean like is bulbous being used to describe it generally or is the gland itself specifically named the bulbous gland
0: it's being used to describe it but it looks like it is called the bulbous glandus or the bulbourethral gland. Perfect. Is different. That's the cowper's gland. But this is the bulbous glandus, also called a bulb or knot, is an erectile tissue structure on the penis of canid mammals. Okay. Okay. During mating, immediately before ejaculation, the tissues swell up to lock tie the male's penis inside the female's. The locking is completed by circular muscles just inside the female's vagina. This is called the knot tightening, thus preventing the male from withdrawing. Whew.
1: So that time that they're just standing, hanging out—that's they're just waiting for the bulbous gland to deflate, as it were, so they can get on with their days.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: This bulbous glandus also occurs in the penises of some pinnipeds, including South American fur seals. Oh. In the African wild dog, the copulatory tie has been reported to be absent or very brief, less than one minute, possibly due to the abundance of large predators.
1: Oh, wow. So they know they got to hit it and quit it.
0: Right. In Yeah, the African wild dogs.
1: Wow. Oh, gosh. That's so interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay. So now that we've talked about coyote dicks, <laughs> as Meredith said earlier, we were interested in discussing sort of animals and their relation to the cultures of indigenous persons. This is the only episode I think, well, I think this is maybe the second or third time that we've like been like, Hey, do you want to do coordinated animals? And we kind of like pick our animals. Yeah. And not to give anything away, but of course I'm going to take the canids. And of course, Uh Meredith is going to take the animal from the class that her animal is from. (laughs) because like a doy. So the coyote has a prominent figure in many cultures stories legends mythology and generally as a trickster probably because of its natural ability to just kind of sneak in and get yes you know steal a sheep or two or like steal some food and they're fast and they're kind of sneaky right so one story that i found from the Chinookan people's Describes Coyote's attempt to catch fish, catch salmon specifically. There are multiple failures where he is unsuccessful. And so the Coyote defecates and his poop begins to insult him (laughs) and is like making fun of him. And then his poop eventually stops insulting him and is like, hey, you should really do this to catch the salmon. And then after you've caught it, you should salt it and- have delicious fish experiences with this delicious salmon recipe that I'm telling you and I'm your poop. And so then the coyote's like, "Wow, my shit's onto something." And so then the coyote goes back to the river and he goes to catch some more salmon. And he's successful for a while and he's Okay. doing these recipes, he's having delicious salmon treats, everything's going really wonderful. But then he starts to fail again. And he's not catching the fish. It's just fishless again. Okay. So he stops and he poops again. And this batch of feces tells Coyote that there's even more aspects that he has to take into consideration when fishing. Including, like, go to this river and stand on this rock and do it when the sun is in the sky. And you will have success catching salmon, and I believe that this story likely goes through some other iterations because the structure of it is very good for delivering messages. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because it's the sure. cycle. So right. eventually, Coyote finally understands how to fish properly, but is thoroughly exhausted. Uh-huh. I love this story. Some of the other stories that I encountered also involved feces. There was somewhere like whoever could poop, And launched their poop over a buffalo, (sighs) won a prize or something. There were some of these kinds of stories. Yes. And I also have to say that I embellished on my story a little bit from the source material. But I think that's kind of the point of some of these stories. Oral history, man. I think oral histories are mostly about embellishment and about setting up structure and riffing over it. Mm -hmm. But that's a coyote of a different coat (laughs) color. That's oh, a that's Rufus a, Coyote. A, yeah, as opposed to our <laughs> Fulvis friend. Yes. The, another taxonomy cheer just started playing randomly in my section. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of posed this to my Friday night Zoom hang where me and the dudes get together on Zoom and just kind of hang out. I was like, yeah, this is, here's the story. What's everyone's thoughts on it? And Quinn, hey, Quinn, Quinn Collins said that it's about digesting the experience and you have this experience and you're doing the thing. And then the entire time that it's happening, you are learning things that you're not even learning, you know, and then you process them and you poop them out. Yeah. And so like, if the speaking poo is more of a metaphor of like your internalness, you know what I mean? Like your, Hmm. your internal critic. Sure. And so it's like, well, you have to reflect on what happened previously and digest that information. And then after you've digested that information, then that information is going to contain a lot of judgment and a lot of frustration. But beyond that, it's going to contain useful information that you can actually utilize to get better at the thing. These are the lessons that you've learned along the way. And so it's Advice for catching the fish and advice for preparing the fish. But then after that, there will still be other things to consider. Absolutely. So you may be good at it for a while, but then you will fail again. And when you fail again, you have to analyze, why am I failing? And maybe that's about specific geographic locations, you know, or a specific mm-hmm. time of day or sure. or methods or things like that. And so I think that that, to me, that seems to be the moral of this story. And I think that's really fun.
1: I love that. I didn't go there immediately. I think I was a little bit more like, not pragmatic about it, but I think that's a much more um, wide scope approach. And I love that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's like literally you can learn a lot by what's working for you and what's not working by your poop. Right. And I don't mean this in like the puerile way. I think there is really a lot to learn about your poop experiences and. You know, was this good? Was this bad? Like, how did this food agree or not agree with me? Is this telling me I shouldn't eat this in the future? Does this tell me anything about, you know, my state of mind? You know, we're learning more and more how that's linked to the gut. Like, in all seriousness, I think a lot can be said about what comes out of your bum. Mm -hmm. And... That's immediately what I was thinking. I was like, good for this sure. coyote to know that sure. this is such an insight into what he should and shouldn't be doing. But I think as a larger metaphor, Quinn is like dead on. I think that's really, right, really beautiful. And I think it could work on both levels.
0: I agree with that. You went where I went first, where I was thinking about like, yeah, yeah you should just look at your poo and just be like, what's my poo doing? Mm-hmm. And it could be insulting you. yeah. And telling you that you've made mistakes in your diet.
1: Yes. (laughs) And
0: then it can also be like, no, this is a good one. Mm -hmm. And so this is the better way to prepare the food because this is what my poop looked like. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think that that's definitely part of it, too. And that's the thing. It's like that's one of the things that I think makes this a good story is because it works on those levels. And so, yeah, it's probably why a legend like this is there, you know. And um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's it's also applying our sort of Western, you know, so-called Western, like our our European whiteness standards of religion and hygiene and all these types of things into a story that was independent of those sorts of things. I think it's we can giggle a little bit about the poop, but it's also like, yeah, dude, look at your poop. What's your poop doing?
1: Which. I mean, like, the, I think the giggle comes from the fact that it's been made taboo uh-huh. by kind of these Western standards. But the idea that it is a part of life and it is something to interact with, <laughs> or at least to be like aware of, is important. And it's not necessarily like a giggle thing, it is an insight into your health, into how you respond and deal with things you're ingesting. Mm. And I like that a story like this can kind of facilitate interactions with our poop interactions however you want to frame that right (laughs) but you know at least like observational experience empirical evidence based on okay this thing resulted in a very unpleasant toilet experience how can i change going forward
0: right or this recipe resulted in a very positive toilet experience.
1: Exactly. And I think we've been trained to kind of think that poop is not to be talked about when really like poop is such an, a key indicator of how our bodies are dealing with things like mentally, emotionally, physically, biologically. All of these things come out in our poop. And like that is part and parcel. It's the heart of this story. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah i just have rarely seen you so conv- with so much conviction <laughs> yeah. meredith
1: you happen to touch upon one of my favorite topics
0: mm. well <laughs> this shit is the shit i guess
1: oh i found the word i know the word about oh, yeah. animals synthropic.
0: synathropic like a, is that like an s-y-n-a-t-h
1: yeah so like synergy would probably it be very similar. Syner- synergy,
0: synanthropic. Ooh, that's how we're going to remember it.
1: Yeah. So it's like
0: human animal synergy.
1: Right. And what was funny is like, oh, I know in my notebook this this came up with the housefly and it was so funny I flipped right to the housefly page, not even on purpose. Mm. So I found it very fast, but synanthropes. Coyotes in this way could be synanthropic in that. I remember this being kind of a big deal maybe like um I don't know, a little over a decade ago where it just seemed that coyotes were moving further and further east. Sure. Was a big thing. And it was kind of a big deal that like my parents were seeing them in Cincinnati. And I remember being on my friend's porch kind of late at night in Nashville. And there were just two oh my God. They were skinny, like rail thin. Like you could see their ribs. Coyotes just trotting down like a residential street. Yeah. Late at night once. And it was like. And I remember all this talk in the news about like how they're moving further and further east. And there they were in Nashville, Tennessee, just trotting down the road.
0: Yeah. I saw them once on Cape Cod.
1: Dang. That's as east as it gets.
0: Yeah. That was like 10 years ago, too. Yeah. Wow. Can't get more east than that. Right. Wow. It's said that they're particularly represented in the mythology of the people of the Arito-America region, which is a new term that I've learned.
1: Yeah, I don't know that one.
0: You could think of it as what's the arid region of North America. So we're talking like Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and then down into the northern part of Mexico. Okay, yeah. And it says that it's defined by the presence of a drought-resistant bean, Phaseolus acutifolius. Cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Meredith, that's pretty much all my coyote information. Do you have any coyote questions?
1: I don't. I mean, I I think they're really interesting and scrappy. I love their solitary call. I also, um, have you ever seen the Simpsons episode with the coyote? It's like a famous episode where... Homer eats a hot pepper that has hallucinogenic Uh, qualities uh and he ends up on a spiritual quest where he encounters a coyote who's voiced by the one and only Johnny Cash. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the most perfect Simpsons episode possible in that it starts out at like A and ends up at like, I don't know, P. (laughs) It just goes so many different places. Like the whole episode literally ends with like People singing Who Wears Short Shorts. It's so good. It's such uh-huh. a fantastic episode. I can't remember the exact title of it now, but it's famous. I'm sure I could Google it's famous. that. I think it won an Emmy. It's so funny. It It's like one of the best episodes of The Simpsons of all time.
0: What do you think I would Google to find that? Like Simpsons?
1: Just say like Coyote Johnny Cash Simpsons.
0: Coyote Johnny Cash, yeah.
1: Something Nuestro de Homer or something like that.
0: Yeah. El Viaje misterioso de Nuestro Homer. Yeah. The Mysterious Voyage of Homer.
1: Yeah. It's fantastic. If you have Disney Plus, you can find it.
0: Oh, perfect. Yeah, I'll look on it. It's I'll look on that for it to- today. It's great. Yeah. Well, I guess, Meredith, just to wrap up, I would just <laughs> like to say that I have no regrets, Coyote, and that... You know, we're just, I mean, we may come from a different set, of, set circumstance. of
1: circumstance. You're up all night in the studio and I'm up lazy on my ranch or something like that.
0: <laughs> I'm up all night at the studios. You're, and you're up, up early, early on, on your ranch.
1: Your ranch. That's You'll be it. brushing out a broodmare's, broodmare's tail. tail
0: while the sun is ascending. And I'm just going to be getting home with my, my reel to reel. There's no, no comprehending. comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes. And the lips you can get and still feel so alone and still feel related, like stations in some relay. You're not a hit and run driver, no no no. racing away. You just picked up a hitcher, a prisoner.
1: prisoner Of the the white white lines lines of the free free way. Thank you, Joni Mitchell.
0: Yeah, thanks, Joni.
1: Literally one of the best songs ever written. I know. with Coyote. Yakko
0: on the bass. Oh, Jesus. Tearing the shit out of that instrument.
1: <laughs> well, break time.
0: Break time.
1: Good evening. I'm Hugh Downfeathers.
0: And I'm Barbara Walters Warthog. And this is
2: zer Zoe.
0: Tonight on Zooey Zooey, we have a special segment called Who Who is That Owl in Manhattan? Focusing on two different owls who have made the news. Meredith Jurgens reports from Central Park about the owl who has stolen the hearts of all New Yorkers.
1: Who knew that in the months of COVID, yet another bird would fly into New Yorkers' hearts and steal it away? The latest bird, Crush, is Barry the Barred Owl of Central Park. You can find him in the north woods, preening and soaring across the pond for his latest catch. But don't get too close. You don't want to scare Barry away. This has been Meredith Jurgens reporting in Central Park for Suey Suey. Back to you, Barbara.
0: Well, closer to our studio in Rockefeller Center, a forlorn owl was found tucked in the branches of the Norway spruce that was recently delivered to Rockefeller Plaza. Originating in Oneata, New York, the spruce was cut down and then shipped 200 miles to Manhattan, where it was erected outside of Rockefeller Center. Workers installing the tree found... An adorably cute owl tucked in one of the branches of the trees. One of the workers put it in a cardboard box and took it home. The owl has been identified as a saw-wet owl. They've nicknamed the bird Rockefeller and given him fluids and all the mice he will eat as he arrived hungry and dehydrated. Back to you, Hugh.
1: Well, Barbara, these stories were quite a hoot. (laughs) I'm Ooh, down feathers!
0: And I'm Barbara Hualters Huartog. And that was Zui Zui. Are you a toad?
1: Are you tired?
0: Are you a tired toad?
1: Do you need a place to sit?
0: To rest?
1: To recover?
0: The Inuran furniture market is more catered to frogs.
1: Leaving toads without couches.
0: Chairs.
1: Davenports.
0: Or even chess lounges.
1: Fortunately, Brad Clubby is here to help.
0: With the new toadstools seating for the whole Buffonidae family.
1: All 52 genera of toads will find something to love in the Toadstools Fall-Winter 2020 collection.
0: Toad couches. Toad chairs. Toad Davenports.
1: And even Toad Chalons.
0: The future is bright for your leisure time.
1: Plus, Brandclobie exclusively uses post-organic material from the Kingdom Fungi to manufacture and package toadstools, Seating for the whole Day family.
0: Ensuring your carbon footprint is kept to a minimum.
1: Log on to the Brand Clubby web portal for a complete catalog.
0: Or download the Brand Clubby app, and you can see these exciting new products in your home using their cutting-edge augmented reality technology.
1: It's just like Pokemon Go, but with furniture.
0: That's thrilling. It
1: sure is, but not as exciting as saving 25% off your first purchase when using code Fit for a Prince 15 at checkout. Ribbit! Ribbit.
0: Texana you. Texana we. Texana who?
1: Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Animalia fan club. Phylum. Cordata. Oh, now that's a fine spine. Class. Yes, Aves. I'm doing another bird. Order. Accipiter forms. diurnal versus prey family Accipitridae strongly hooked bills genus Aquila only the true eagles allowed species Aquila Chrysitos. highly revered and mystical it's the golden eagle woo ka 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 soar 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 oh my god it's a golden eagle and what a journey this has been i didn't realize getting into the golden eagle that this would just be like (laughs) such a wealth of information Mm -hmm. oh my gosh so much significance amongst indigenous cultures it's it's quite the bird quite the bird okay so tax facts let's just get through this so we can get to the fun stuff so I will say I kind of cheated a little bit in that I was like, oh, my God, I think my animal fact file has the Golden Eagle card in it. So I dug it out. And sure enough, the first page of the birds was indeed the Golden Eagle.
0: Amazing. But
1: I do risk misinformation or outdated information when I am consulting my fact file circa 1992. Case in point, it had the Golden Eagle Classified under the order of falcaniforms. And that's like so <laughs> pre 2008. Now, uh, actually, golden eagle is classified under the order of accipitriforms. So this includes hawks, eagles, and kites, but not falcons, which remain in the order of falcaniforms. Okay. Okay. So now we can move on to family, which is accipitri day. And this includes three different families of birds. So beyond the Excipitryphiformes, I don't know. I can't say it. We also have the Pandionidae. So that refers to the ospreys, specifically the family of the ospreys. And the Sagittariidae, What's up, girls? It's your season. And this is the secretary bird. It's the only species in this family, the Sagittariidae. The secretary bird of sub Saharan Africa. Okay. Which we've got to do one of these days. A the secretary bird is.
0: Yeah. No, the secretary bird with the hat, with the, the, uh, the feathers. Oh my going gosh.
1: Out. She's everything. I love her. Yeah. She's so leggy and she's so pretty. Leggy. Okay. So the Exipatridae, they're very cosmopolitan, but they do have a varied morphology based on their diet. So, Hugh Darwin. To the Darwin theme song, these birds are going to be, they're going to look different and adapted differently based upon what they eat. And one of these adaptations is this hooked beak, which I love hooked beaks. And then we move on to genus, which is Aquila or Aquila. I believe aquia is how this would be pronounced, but that is Greek for quote unquote dark in color. And I think that refers to actually this golden eagle because their plumage is Primarily dark brown, but around like the napes of their necks, they have like little golden feathers. Uh-huh. Very pretty. But I didn't know this. Eagles are actually not a natural group. Oh. It's just kind of a general name for birds of prey. You know, B-O-P. Oh. Yeah,
0: you know me. Yeah, you know me.
1: Um. So there's a general name for birds of prey that are large enough to hunt vertebrates. So it's not like a natural group, but just kind of like a catch-all. I guess, Uh a retention basin for (laughs) vertebrate-eating birds of prey. Uh Okay, now our species, our gorgeous golden eagle, the Aquila chrysatose. So this is the most widely distributed eagle, and I will tell you exactly where they're distributed one moment, please. So they like wide open spaces, which... This allows them to see their prey kind of scurrying around on the ground. So they love a marmot, Uh they love a prairie dog, they love a rodent of any kind, like a squirrel, Uh et cetera. And they'll even go after like mountain goats too, which is crazy. There was a YouTube video that was like, see a golden eagle pick off a goat from a cliff's edge. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not gonna watch that, I'm good. So they like high cliffs and trees for perching. So they're spread out amongst essentially the northern hemisphere. They're the most widely distributed eagle, like I said. So across pretty much all the northern hemisphere. So this includes North Europe, Asia, North America, North Africa, and sometimes depending on their um, migratory path, sometimes into southwest the Southwest and Mexico in winter. And they've even been found like as far east as like Pennsylvania huh. during the winter as well based on their migratory sure. habits and patterns. Sure. Okay, so I talked about their plumage, but also I do love that they kind of look like they're wearing pants because <laughs> they've got feathers that kind of go down all the way to their feet, uh-huh. to their talons. Uh-huh. Unlike the juvenile bald eagle, which is often confused for the golden eagle because juvenile bald eagles don't have that like characteristic white head yet. Right. But as one YouTuber said, they're a little bit more risque because they reveal their ankles. Unlike the fully panted, pantalooned golden eagle.
0: Is there a difference in prey? I would imagine that bald eagles would catch fish if they have naked legs. But that Golden Eagles would not.
1: Oh my god, that's so that's so interesting. I think Golden Eagles can and would. I think they're kind of opportunistic. Like they'll even get in on some carrion if it's about or They'll kind of take down whatever they can, and they can take down a lot Mm. because they're so huge. My animal fact file said that they were the largest bird of prey, but I didn't see that reported anywhere else. I watched like five YouTube videos and read a few articles, and I just didn't see anybody else making that creature superlative. So Mm -hmm. um, animal fact file, again. um...
0: (laughs) More like animal fact check required file.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so I just like I have to take everything they say with a grain of salt, unfortunately. Though I don't I do love that I'm like mm-hmm. so many years later still consulting that as a resource.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, obviously they've got like the sharpest talons. You look at their feet and you're like, "Oh my god, stay away from my eyes, please." Mm-hmm. And they've got these hooked beaks and they use these for just dismemberment. They can like you can imagine like you've essentially got a knife like hanging over your lower mandible and you've got and so you can just like tear into shit right and I remember them working in tandem with like other scavenger birds like the ravens or the turkey vultures because they're the ones that are going to show up at the scene of the animal death and like rip that carcass open whereas like the turkey vultures and the ravens get to wait and kind of like eat the leftovers once that carcass is ripped open (laughs) Mm -hmm. yippee so cute. So these are more soarers. They love to soar. Okay, their wingspan is six to seven and a half feet. That is a huge bird.
0: Yeah. Well, if we're doing our wingtips to Mike, <laughs> the wingtip would extend far past my head.
1: Right. Not tickling your nose this time.
0: No. Or my neck. Mm-mm. Just kind of like slapping me in the face and the forehead.
1: Slapping <laughs> you over the head this time. Yeah. So again, they kind of have these feathers that when they're spread out, like the primary feathers or what they're called on the outside, they almost kind of look like fingers. Mm-hmm. But these kind of help to like steer them in the sky, help direct them in flight. Um, and they're actually what's called dihedral flyers. So they actually, their wings kind of go up in a V mm. almost as opposed to being flat. So their wings will form a slight V shape in the sky.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, in terms of mating and stuff like that, they pair for life. They often return to the same nest over and over again, and they like to build their nests on ledges and cliffs and treetops. And of course, they used to be more widespread, especially across like the Great Plains region of the United States, but as all things like hunting and farming, as well as like widespread use of pesticides like DEET, have really decreased their populations because this is the problem when you try to use rodenticides or pesticides is that when you have animals at the top of the food chain, they're consuming everything below them. And so when you're trying to chemically control pests, the creatures at the top of the food chain are then going to be consuming those animals that then have all those toxins and poisons within them. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. poisoning within birds of prey in general. And there's also a lot of issues with lead poisoning as well. And that does come from pesticide use also. But I am happy to say that there are bald and golden eagle protection acts in the ledger of the United States laws.
0: Sure, sure.
1: At least there's that. So it is recognized as a species that needs to be protected. And I did watch a video of um, the United States Fish and Wildlife Services, where they essentially it's an intake center for all of these deceased birds. But then they will hold on to these birds and actually distribute the feathers of these birds to various indigenous tribes, because to get to our larger point of the significance of these animals to the indigenous tribes of the United States or North America, I should say, present day North America, United States, like eagle feathers hold a massive, massive, massive significance. So I, you know, for all of the awful things that have happened, you know, directed by the United States against the indigenous peoples, it is nice to see that these efforts, these efforts to kind of say we've got, you know, a lot of deaths of these eagles, but how about we are able to still distribute the feathers to you to use in your traditional rites and rituals. Mm. So now that we kind of made that segue, we can talk a little bit about this relationship. So I found this wonderful article called Toward a Native American Theology of Animals, Creek and Cherokee Perspectives by Dave Aftandillian. And essentially, he just kind of went through, like the title says, a theology of animals and the place animals hold amongst belief systems of indigenous peoples and kind of made a few key points that I think apply across the board Mm -hmm. in terms of animal people relationships. So animals are more powerful than humans, essentially because they were here first and therefore they have more practical and spiritual knowledge and they actually worked together in some of these stories of creation. Okay, yes, it was a creek story, essentially about the creation of the earth. So the earth used to be covered in all water, and the animals kind of got together, and they're like, we should decide if we want to keep it all water, or if we want to bring some land into the mix. And so there was like a creature council, essentially, that got together, and they're like, okay, what do we do about this? Uh-huh. And so they sent... The dove out, and the dove didn't really have any success with like finding any land. And then they sent the crawdad out, or the crawfish mudbug. Mudbug. <laughs> this is another word. They sent the crawfish out, and he kind of like burrowed into the ground, and then like came back with kind of a clawful of mud. And so the eagle, they kind of nominated the eagle. as was like the head of this council, and the eagle went and took this ball of mud out. And said that, I guess uh, the implication is that the eagle was able to create an island of this ball of mud and invited all the creatures that wanted to live on land to this island. Fun. So it's essentially this story that is kind of um, demonstrating the different realms. So the cosmology of the Creek people in this sense, creating kind of this dualistic realm wherein there's the upper world. So the world of the winged creatures and the birds, essentially.
0: Your area.
1: My area. Class A's. Hey. And then the underworld. That's the underwater world that's going to be inhabited by, like, the fish and other underwater creatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of trying to find a way to mediate between those two worlds. And it was said that humans were the ones that were indeed able to mediate between those two worlds, but it was only because of the experience and the guidance of those creatures who were indeed the masters of their realms, so to speak. Uh-huh. Yes. So essentially, creatures are kind of giving humans like a blueprint as to, you know, ability to talk and organize and perform rites and ceremonies and things like that. And so, kind of working off of this dual realm existence birds and particularly birds of prey and large birds like them given their ability to fly so high they're very much linked as like messengers to the creator and carriers of prayers up to the creator the creator associated as living in the upper world, in the upper realms. Uh So that's why the eagle, in general, across a lot of things that I read, across a lot of cultures, across the present day United States, highly, highly revered the eagle and kind of often used them in, let's say, prayers. They often would be, eagle feathers would be used in prayers. Eagle feathers would be given as gifts to like only the most honorable and brave respectable people they're often used in ceremonies as a means of a healing and purification often used in a lot of regalia and this is why i was very late to oh recording today because it was just like pretty much i'm not gonna say every tribe by all means but i will say across the present day united states eagle feathers and the significance of the eagle plays into so many different tribal communities and tribal societies, they will figure into, say, the Cherokee eagle dance in which particular configurations of eagle feathers will be used in these ritualistic dances. They appear in war masks, essentially because they're representative of these birds with, you know, like, fierce, tireless strength. Mm -hmm. And those headdresses that we often associate so much with, like, say, the Dakota Sioux, All of those headdresses, those are eagle feathers. Huh. Yeah, because the eagle feathers, you know, they're said to um, kind of capture the attention of the creator and represent such a strong link with the creator. Interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, I feel bad that I can't speak much more to this without, it's just you want to be very clear and specific when you're talking about Native cultures, because, again, they're not a monolith. They're all very distinct and have very clear representations as to these animals and the use of their feathers and things like that um, across the animal world. So I just, I didn't want to get too far into one thing at the expense of another and to represent any of them as like too similar to any other tribe. But I will say that I was kind of surprised at how much the eagle figured into many many tribes across mm-hmm. the nation
0: well said meredith
1: yeah so i just talked a lot do you have
0: no i love it
1: questions i think concerns? um well i
0: guess i guess one thing that i just want to say is uh i think yes specificity is important i think that's something that we need to acknowledge for sure but i think that sure we also need to encourage amateurism and exploration of new material yeah. you don't have to have a comprehensive encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of everything except deform I mean, through this we've proven like sure we do not know how to say <laughs> half these words that we're saying, yeah, like absolutely no idea, but I mean, we're encountering them where otherwise we would have not, so yeah,
1: yeah, and like I love I got to pull out. The books that my mom had in her third grade classroom, not to like trivialize this at all. I mean, I picked these books because they are just gorgeously, beautifully well put together, like encyclopedias of um, Native American cultures. Mm -hmm. And it was just so, I felt like my eight-year-old self again with like this like excitement about animals and Native cultures and how the two intersect and (laughs) getting to go through these books I love that my mom's, like, written in, like, our last name in them. You know, it's like they're clearly the books from her old Mm third-grade shelf. (laughs) It just makes me so happy.
0: That's very funny. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, I mean, thank you for that. I thought that was really great. I guess that I've seen these eagles all over the country, I guess like now that I'm thinking of them because they just have such a huge wingspan and like seeing them, you know, near highways and stuff like that. Kind yeah, of, like...
1: particularly out west. I think Um, I did read something, though, that they're easy to confuse with turkey vultures mm. mm-hmm. because of the size, but they are going to be bigger. And remember that turkey vultures are always going to be the ones that in the sky look like they're like a little unstable. Like you won't see the wind really affecting the flight the soaring ability of a golden eagle, say. I see. Whereas, like, you will see a a turkey vulture kind of faltering a bit in the wind. Okay, okay, Yeah. good.
0: All right, well, there's the... the, (laughs) That's great. Do you have any Joni Mitchell lyrics that you would like to end your segment with?
1: Oh, my God, about eagles? I'm sure there's something about an eagle. (laughs) How could I even pick? Oh, man, we didn't talk about this because we haven't done crows yet, but a crow flying black and ragged tree to tree how about that
0: perfect yeah (laughs) it's a side story from the. that's the spinoff of the golden eagle show you know right
1: (laughs) i'll sing the whole crow i'll sing the whole um crow song when we do crows one of these days yeah the the
0: crow (laughs) special where we do crow rituals look forward to that crow necromancy (laughs)
1: In one of her live performances, there's this video of Joni Mitchell like wearing like it's this insane like black fur cape that's got all these like black fur tails like hanging off of it like crow's wings and she's on ice uh. skates in it. <laughs> 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 genius. Very early 80s.
0: Yeah, I guess on that note, um, <laughs> break time.
1: Yeah, it's time.
2: Whoa, 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 whoa. What, do you think I'm stupid? You expect me to believe this is your ID?
1: Ha, Abe, this idiot doesn't think we can tell the difference between a kid axolotl and an adult axolotl.
2: Get the hell out of here, kid. Don't even think about coming back until you're 18 months old.
1: And these chums are getting more and more brazen by the day.
2: Well, good thing the brand clubby dance tech has the good sense to hire us, Ed and Abe. The Moose Knuckles Professional Moose Bouncers.
1: You got that right, Ed. As the heaviest extantia species, we've got the keen observational skills of an ungulate, but also the terrifying brawn necessary to call any herd of rowdy club goers.
2: From ferrets to flamingos. We'll break up any dispute over territory or mates.
1: Call us for your security needs at...
2: Bars and sports clubs.
1: Nightclubs.
2: Hotels. Flex. And comedy clubs.
1: Join the over 50 fine establishments throughout the tri-state area who have chosen us, Ed And and name: the Moose Knuckles Professional Moose Bouncers.
2: They chose us because, as we always say, monkey business gets you a, a moose, moose knuckle, knuckle to, to the, the face. face.
1: Well, we've got Thanksgiving oats, so there's some sage in the mix today.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some leftovers
1: coming off my Thanksgiving feast. Yeah. Well, shall we just get into into the feedback?
0: Yeah, I I think I'm still just recovering from that the uh, moose knuckle commercial. If I'm honest, Meredith, (laughs) the moose knuckles professional moose bouncers. I'm just don't mess with them, man. Really thrilled. No, I love that. um, I just love that the brand Clubby, like, I just think it's such a forward-thinking company and just expanding into different markets and different industries. That portfolio is diversified, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) If anything. Yeah. So Tanya from Tacoma asks, do turkey kids trace their talents for any holidays?
0: <laughs> for well, probably for Thanksgiving Remembrance Day, I imagine
1: <laughs> for their Thanksgiving memorials,
0: uh huh, for
1: all they've lost in the great oh my God to be a turkey and to have like a yearly massacre that you have to memorialize every year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, do you, Meredith, I've been thinking about this. Do you think this is it's going to be more turkeys this year as? people that would not normally purchase a turkey are doing a smaller scale Thanksgiving like at home. Do you think that there do you think that the turkey slaughter is greater or less than a typical yeah, year, I considering our sort of quarantine Thanksgiving?
1: Moment? You know I have to wonder I, I I would hope so because I would hope <clears throat> there doesn't need to be um, a bird to feed a whole crew of people. Um, maybe people mm-hmm. are just going to go for like a simple breast Sure. You know, kind of like the segmented parts uh, cut up of turkey. turkey. Yeah, in order to be more economical. Yeah. You know, I have to say I do eat meat, but I'm not. I really don't like turkey, so I myself have never really been much on the turkey train. I'm. I'm I love my sides. I'm a girl who loves her sides. Yeah. So I won't be participating in any turkey yeah. eating. But
0: yeah. I don't know that I'm going to either. I have some ground turkey in the f- freezer, so maybe I'll get into that, I guess. Like a little turkey meatloaf? Yeah, that sounds great, actually. Yeah. That's a really good idea for to-
1: <laughs> I have found that I, if there is a way I can eat turkey, it's often like as a turkey meatloaf or something like that. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I guess back to Tanya's question.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, Tanya. What do those little turkey kiddos, do they trace their talents for any holidays?
0: Yes, Thanksgiving Remembrance Day.
1: Yeah, the annual Thanksgiving massacre.
0: A fish position. A fish
1: position. Ding, ding, ding.
0: Yeah, ding, 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 ding. Well, Kevin from Quebec asks us Are tsetse flies orderly?
1: Kevin, whatever do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I guess that's a good question. Like, orderly in what sense, Kevin? I don't think you could get a room full of tsetse flies to sit down and listen to a even five minute lecture without a pretty high level of what i would describe as disorder yeah and i'm not saying that that's a bare minimum threshold for orderliness
1: five minute lecture
0: yeah but i would say the fact that they can't do that means that they are in fact not orderly although i guess it could be argued that through their process of you know birth and death that has been going on for millions and millions and millions and millions of years like that's actually quite organized, I guess. So, yeah, this is a pretty tricky question, Kevin.
1: Yeah, it's very loaded actually. Yeah, like are they easy to herd? Probably not.
2: No, no,
1: but on a grander scale, are they adhering to grand cycles of birth and death and cyclical approaches to being? Sure. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I think that typically the term orderly, though, is normally, well, unless it's some sort of attendant. I know, I keep thinking sort of, like,
1: orderly. So
0: we're talking about, like, I guess, would this be the adverb orderly?
1: Probably. Probably.
0: Probably. <laughs> um, I think that when you describe something as orderly orderly or would it be an adjective I don't even know I don't even know if it's an adverb or an adjective
1: orderly I think it actually is an adjective yeah. yeah.
0: I don't think that I would use the term orderly to describe tzitzit flies. I think that there could be a case made that their grander scale evolutionary concept has been ordered. But I think that in terms of my associations with the word orderly, I would not assign that to a tzitzit fly.
1: No. <clears throat> Are they grounded in geological time? Sure. Are they grounded in like human productivity time? Probably not.
0: Yeah, definitely
1: not. All right. A fish position. Fish position. Ding ding ding. Ding ding. ding, ding,
0: ding, ding. ding.
1: Alright. Samuel from Akron would like to know. How many words per minute can a secretary bird type? <laughs> well. Okay.
0: Oh boy. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. If we're gonna just like suspend disbelief in that Secretary birds can like read and write, okay, let alone type. Yes, I would think that it would not actually be that fast because I would think they'd have to like flap their wings to like hoist themselves into the air and type as long as they can before gravity oh, pulls them back down.
0: Point Meredith,
1: it's like a hoist type down, hoist type down, oh, okay. and like. That doesn't seem very uh, efficient. It doesn't. If we're going by like human standards. I don't even know what like words per minute is good.
0: I know that I type very fast.
1: I do too. Thank you all those years on AOL Instant Messenger honing my typing skills.
0: Yeah. 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 Actually, learning about the home row at a young age too.
1: Did you do Qwerty? What's that? In elementary school, Qwerty. It was like this computer assist, like computer game for like elementary school kids to like learn how to type. Oh.
0: We had games that we played, but I, I don't remember the name of them. Qwerty is how I would describe the keyboard. Um, And I was going to say, we have jumped past the point of like, does the bird use a QWERTY keyboard? (laughs) Do they use Vorschach? Do they (laughs) like, But and we've just assumed that we're at like a custom secretary bird keyboard that's like well-suited for their talent. (laughs) I would like to go back to the question, (laughs) which is how many words per minute can secretary birds type? Not does a typical secretary bird
1: type. Sure, sure. So
0: (laughs) I would like to posit that one could build some sort of apparatus to support the weight of the secretary, like a sort of like secretary bird (laughs) swing, thus allowing the talons a freedom of movement. And that for a working secretary bird, like I just trust them if they're able to type, I trust them to make this piece of technology, I guess, just like as a species or, you know, in a sort of like interspecies Zootopian future, like that there would be like teamwork to assemble this sort of thing to help like adaptive technologies to facilitate a secretary bird's full words-per-minute realization. Like, how fast can a human run? You're going to Uh, look to Hussein (laughs) Bolt. So I think for how many words-per-minute can Secretary Birds type, we should look to the best (laughs) trained and experienced and facilitated typers, in my opinion.
1: How much you want to bet her name is Brenda? (laughs)
0: $500. (laughs) Which is a really big bet for me right now. (laughs)
1: And at all like, points
0: in my life.
1: I was like, oh gosh, that's high. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. I okay. I would put it at ninety seven. Ninety
1: seven. I literally I have no idea what's fast and what isn't. I don't know what's like
0: Yeah, I guess I don't know what's the right like thing.
1: I mean I could look this up right now.
0: And it is also a sustained a sustained versus sprint because of course Meredith, me. Right. <laughs> hyper competitive me when it was like given the timer of like how many words per minute can you type in this one minute in the keyboarding class and i would put my fullest energy into that so that was really my fastest word per minute speed as opposed to a comfortable speed which is not a distinction i realized until my 30s
1: okay so i just looked this up okay so the the average person types between 38 to 40 words per minute. However, professional typists type a lot faster between 65 and 75 words per minute.
0: Uh huh. I'm gonna say 57.
1: I'll say 62. House
0: divided, <laughs> average is 60, well, 59.5 or whatever. Yeah. Calm down. No, <laughs> no, don't at me about that, everybody. Mm-hmm. We need to calm down about the math fact checking.
1: It's not a math podcast. Podcast.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Moose Knuckles podcast.
1: I'd be like, Abe and Ed need their own podcast.
0: A (laughs) fish position. Ding 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 ding. Well. Yeah, keep the questions coming. AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com.
1: We love to hear from you. We're gonna go now.
0: Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jergens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences.
1: Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com.
0: Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod at MeredithJergens and at Mike underscore Luno.
1: And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening
0: to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the
2: Animal Fan Club.